Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right. Good evening, everybody. Let's go to 2 Samuel 24. 2 Samuel 24, and also be in First Chronicles 21. All right, this story comes uh, near the end of David's life after he's had a lifetime of serving God and um, seeing God rescue him personally and give victory over uh, foreign armies. Uh, over and over again, he's seen that. And so we want to keep that in mind. And uh, so what happens next is kind of surprising. But before we get there, does anybody remember when David was fighting Goliath, he was probably, how old do you think he was? Okay, 17, 19, 13 to 15. As you can see, we don't have an exact number. Well, he was a young man, that's right. We don't know how old he was. He was just young, uh, probably Probably around seventeen, somewhere in there. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. But we do know that he was he was very young. And uh, does anybody remember what he said to Goliath when he finally, you know, he casts off Saul's armor and he gathers his stones and then he begins to go into battle against um, Goliath in the valley. I come to you in the name of the Lord, but he said something else. What I don't come to you with. Do you remember? Sword and shield, and my translation has javelin, okay? So uh, I don't come to you in the name of, I don't come to you with those things. I come to you in the name of the Lord. And and that's really important to keep in mind. In fact, in uh, chapter 17 there, it's in verses 45 through 47, it says, um, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Lovely. This very day I will give your carcasses, the the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. How are they going to know that? What's going to be the indicator from this battle? That their victory, and anything specific about that victory? Unlikely, right? A untrained shepherd boy without armor, without modern weapons. And we said before that Philistines were miles ahead in terms of their weapons against Israel, that they were, they were already out of the bronze and they were into the iron, and that wasn't something that Israel had. Sorry? The difference in size? Yes, there was a difference in size between David and Goliath. And so that would have been an indicator that God had given victory um, to Israel. And in fact, uh, David was kind of perturbed when he came on the battle scene and he sees all the men of Israel cowering in the trenches, right? Like, why aren't you guys out there fighting? The Lord is on your side. He'll give you the victory. Uh, In other words, it's not about the size of the army. It's not about our military prowess. There's something that is unseen, that stands behind Israel's victory. Are are you on the same page with that? That's kind of what David has in mind, like, we're the armies of the living God. Why do we need to be afraid of these guys? Okay, 
And then you'll remember that in uh, in those days they had some sometimes championship warfare where they would take two of their greatest warriors. And the irony is that David's never fought in a battle before, not a not a battle of this kind. He's he's beat the lion and the bear. Uh, he's protected his sheep, but not a battle of this kind. And so, and then you have Goliath, who's a trained warrior. Saul says, you can't beat him. <laughs> Great encouragement from your leader, right? You can't beat him because he's been fighting battles like this since he was young. So you have experience versus inexperience, size against uh, puniness. Can we say that? Um, everything stood against that, and David overcomes in battle. And not only does he overcome, but once he's defeated Goliath, all of the armies of Israel rush out, and they defeat the superior military forces, the Philistines. And so you have this indication of victory. And this is, this is early in David's life. We've, we've had ages from 15 to 19 or 13 to 19 mentioned. And so this is early in David's life. And now uh, this story that we're looking at is near the end of David's life. And we know that for a few reasons. Uh, some of the background of this is uh, in the previous chapters prior to 24, is in chapter 19, David is restored to uh, the throne after being on the run from his son Absalom, and so he's come back to the he's come back to the throne. God has restored him and uh, preserved his life yet again after numerous times. And then in chapter 22, we have him singing a psalm of deliverance in which he mentions how God has given Israel victory over her enemies time and again. And that it's not by our own power that we've done this, but it's because the, the God Almighty is on our side. Okay, So this is all part of what's coming next. You, you need to know that when we read the Bible, we don't just read verses. We're reading big stories. We're reading chapters. We're reading the story that the narrator intended for us to hear. And the narrator, by the way, is not only the human author, but the Holy Spirit who stands behind this. It's telling us something through this big story, and it all goes together in some way. Okay, and then chapter 23, it's called David's Last Song. In the NIV, I think it says David's Last Words. It's not his last words. He's going to bless Solomon, and he's going to give some final instructions. But it's his last song that he writes, and in that song, uh, he sings about triumph over his enemies and how God has given him victories over his enemies. So, that's the background for what takes place next here in chapter 24, and, and we're intended to keep that in mind. So if you read a chapter a day, remember what the previous chapter said, because when you come into chapter 24, we need to have all of this ready so that we understand why this is such a big deal, okay? Let's look at chapter 24, and we'll read verses 1 through 9. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. And so the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Uh, what is, let's pause here for a moment. What does Dan to Beersheba mean? One end to the other. We say New York to LA, and we're offended because we don't fit within that geographical <laughs> description. But, but it usually means one end to the other, right? Well, Israel, it wasn't measured east to west, it was north to south, because that's their their longest uh, dimension. And it was from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, okay? Go throughout the tribes of Israel, we're in verse um, 2 here, from Dan to Beersheba, and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. Why does David say he wants to enroll the fighting men? 
Okay, but what what does it say? Just let's start there. No. Let's listen to this verse again. It says, "Go from Dan to Beersheba and rule the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are." What is the reason why David gives? So he can know how many there are, right? He wants to know. Why does he need to know? We're going to talk about that. But he wants to know how many there are. And I think uh, what Dean says is on the right uh, right uh, track there. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? Okay. Do you notice that that's a question? Okay. Listen as we read on, and let's see if David gives an answer. The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. What is the reason that David gives? There isn't one, is there? It goes from the question to do it. That's exactly right. It's almost like when uh, kids ask their parents, but why? And you say, because I said so. That's the equivalent of what's going on here, David overrules Joab and says, go do it. And uh, so he leaves the king's presence um, to enroll the fighting men in, in Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camp near Toar, south of the town of the, in the gorge. And then they went, to, uh, went through Gad and on to Jazer. And they went to Gilead and to these other places, north to south, east to west, everywhere they could go where there were Israel fighting men, verse, five, uh, verse 8. After they'd gone through the entire nation, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. So nine months and 20 days have passed. David has given the order. Uh, there is a sense, it didn't occur to me before, but there's a sense in which he's carrying this sin forward over a period of most of a year. Do you see that? Nine months have passed in all of this. And they finally come back. And uh, now we're in verse 9. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. And in Judah, 500,000. Okay? So the fighting men are numbered and they're counted. So the census that we've just talked about is against the backdrop of David having said, uh, some trust in horses and some in chariots and some 20. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And him saying when he fights Goliath that some uh, fight with swords and shields and javelins, but I come to you in the name of the Lord our God. Okay, So all of this is kind of the backdrop for what's taking place. Uh, David now is safely back on the throne. God had given him the victory from his enemies. He's near the end of his life. It's not as if he's going to be moving out into any new campaigns. Why? Is he counting the fighting men? There's no war. Why is it necessary for him to count the fighting men? There's a temptation uh, that can come with age and experience. <clears throat> and that, uh, that temptation is to know techniques. We know techniques. And uh, when you get some experience and knowledge, you know techniques about how to accomplish things. Um, you, know, you know a certain way to get through. Like You probably have experienced this in worship service sometimes, that we kind of know when to do things. And we can go into auto-response on things. And if we wanted to, Spurgeon said this back in the 1800s, that 
many Christians, about 90% of what they could do, they could do without the aid of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a sense in which, and he doesn't mean that as a compliment either, just in case you're wondering. Uh, he means that we ought to trust in God every step along the way. I think it was also Spurgeon who said that we to, we're to pray and to prepare as if we're doing all the work, and we're to trust God and uh, as if he's doing all the work. Okay? We're, to, we're to work and get ready as if it's all on us, and yet when it comes time, we need to trust as though God is doing all the work. So this temptation is a temptation that comes with age and knowledge and experience and uh, to look at the good that we have in our lives and to think that we've done, we've done pretty well that God would bless us in this way. Okay? So there's kind of a satisfaction that, that takes credit away from God, that takes our eyes off confidence in God and moves in a different direction. Let's talk about the counting of the fighting men. Verse 1 again, I'd like you to notice something here. It says, and again, God was angry with Israel. Okay, so this is the context into which this comes. And First Chronicles, it doesn't say this as it recounts that. Uh, just so you know, um, First Samuel, First and Second Samuel are, are thought to have been written first. And that if you've read um, the Chronicles, you find out there's a little bit different take on things. And one of the reasons that scholars give for that is that uh, many scholars think that it's post-exilic, that when people come back from the exile in Babylon, the Bible scholars, some Bible scholars, some prophets perhaps, uh, sit down, maybe it was post-exilic prophets, and they they write out those description of those events, but with commentary and insight that the Holy Spirit's given them since then. Okay, So in other words, it's First and Second Samuel expanded upon. So when you come to the Chronicles, you're going to get a little more commentary on things. It's going to tell you not only the events, but it's going to tell you some other things with it. And so as we're thinking about this, uh, I'd just like you to notice in this case, we have the longer statement here. It tells us, again, God was angry with Israel. Now, we didn't, we didn't pass over that. We did pass over it. We didn't study it. But if you go back to, I think, chapter 21, it talks about a time that God was angry with Israel where David had to deal with a situation regarding uh, war reprisals. You remember the sons of Saul? And he has to send them over to the Gibeonites, and, and they execute them as a wartime reprisal. Okay? That there were some injustices, and God required that they take care of that. And so this time it says, and again, the anger of the Lord uh, burned against Israel. This is an interesting statement because... This phrase is used when uh, there are sins of national consequences that are committed. And it says something about the character of the nation. Now, keep in mind, as it says this, David has not yet numbered the fighting men. Are you with me? God is angry before that. Are you with me? This isn't a consequence of David's counting the fighting men. This is the precursor to it. And perhaps it's one of the reasons why it says the Lord is inciting David to do something. Okay, so we want to we think about that for a moment. But whenever it says in the Bible the Lord's anger burned against Israel, it's some kind of sin of national consequence. It usually describes the character of the nation that God is responding to. And so in Numbers chapter 25, verse 3, it tells us that, that Israel committed themselves to Baal Peor. They committed them, they yoked themselves, I think is the verb that's there. They yoked themselves to Baal Peor, and therefore the anger of the Lord burned against them for that. 
well, that's, that's a good reason for the anger of the Lord to be against you is when you've left your covenant relationship with the God that brought you out of Egypt and you're starting to commit yourself to a false God. Okay? The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And then in Numbers 32, verse 13, Israel turned back from the promised land. The spies come out, and you remember 10 of them said, oh, guys, we just can't do this. The, the people are too big. And the two spies said, we, they are big. That's right. I want you to notice that in Scripture, they never deny the reality of it. Yes, those guys are big, but the Lord will give us victory. God's bigger. That's always the refrain is that, yes, those might be the present realities, but we know a God who is able to make a different future. Okay? So they, were, they turned back from that, and it says the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sent them into the wilderness for 40 years. Okay? Then we have in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, this seems like it's a family matter, but it's, it's much bigger than that because the way it describes it is that Israel was unfaithful. Listen, Israel was unfaithful regarding the devoted things. Joshua chapter 7. Anybody know what it's about? It's about the battle of Jericho. And how, did they, how were they unfaithful regarding the devoted things? They're not supposed to take anything from Jericho, the first of the ten cities. I like, there's a good sermon for tithing in that. Don't touch the devoted things. I'm not going to preach that tonight. Don't worry about it. But uh, they, dev- they, they took from the devoted things, and it says the anger of the Lord burned against Israel regarding that. Of course, it was Achan and his family, and there, that may have been just a, a case study. There may have been others that did it, but it tells us about Achan for sure, and his family was singled out. That's in um, Joshua 7, 1. Judges chapter 3, verse 8, Israel forgot the Lord. Remember, a generation grew up that neither knew the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel, and they forgot the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs, and the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. In 2 Kings 13, verse 3, this is, this is after, um, after the story that we're reading tonight. Israel followed in the idolatry of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, remember Jeroboam, Um, there's David, and then there's Solomon, and then Solomon's son is Rehoboam, and Rehoboam uh, effectively splits the kingdom because he refused to let up on the harsh work programs that Solomon began, and part of the kingdom went to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which is the, the northern tribes, and he led them into idolatry by doing something that like, where's this historical sense? What did he do? Anybody remember? He built he built two golden calves, right? He built, like, not just one. One's bad enough. Two. We don't want you going to Jerusalem and, and for this nation to be rejoined and for me to be out of a job. So we've got to do something else. And so this isn't that, but this is telling us of Jehu's son who becomes king. Um how he follows in the idolatry of Jeroboam and this, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel because of their idolatry. And so we're not told exactly what the reason is, but I suspect that the reason that the anger of the Lord in this chapter burns against Israel is because they're in a time of prosperity and I think they're starting to take credit for it themselves. And I think this is reflected in David's attitude even being drawn into that. Like, look at how well we're doing Look at what we've done, and God notices, even if it's not verbalized, but I guarantee you, if that's happening, it was verbalized. Look at how well we've done. Look at what we've become. 
and there's prosperity and plenty and military safety and all of that. And we're a pretty great nation. And I must be a pretty great king and I've got a pretty great army. And I want to I want to take note of what that's like. So I think this may be what stands behind all of this. And so David begins by counting the uh, the troops. So it tells us that David was incited. Now, I want to pause for just a moment and back up here. Um, the Lord was angry with his people here, obviously, right? And so the census may be what is really exposing the problem. And so if God incited David to do this, he may be really exposing the national character, okay? David as the figurehead who has said, some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God, Psalm 20. And I don't come at you with swords and shields and javelins. I come at you in the name of the Lord. And now, what's he doing? He's, he's kind of reneging on that and going back and saying, let's look at how many counting men we have. Do you see how that would be a step backwards in terms of faith? From on one moment saying, we're trusting not in those things, we're trusting in God, to now, look at how great our army is. It's like a step back in faith. It's, it's like he said something and now he's not quite living up to his uh, previous um, convictions. And so David is incited. To incite is to provoke to action. Okay, so it says here that the Lord incited him uh, to count the men of Israel, incited David to act. What is the phrase? We've talked about that, Dan to Beersheba, and he's going to enroll the fighting men. And I'd like you to notice in verse 3 that Joab protests that it's unnecessary, and he asks the question why. David never responds. In fact, uh, in First uh, Chronicles 21, verse 3, Joab not only protests and says that thing about, may the Lord multiply the, the people of Israel, but he goes further and he says, why should you bring, why should the king bring guilt upon Israel by doing such a thing? So Joab, for whatever reason, has these high moments, these bright moments where he's the voice of reason. Okay, one, one, and Joab's a scoundrel. He is. He, he's scoundrelly. But there's moments when he says to David, like, when Absalom is defeated, you need to, you need to quit crying and you need to go out and, and comfort your men and congratulate them. And David hears his advice and he gets up and he goes and does it. There's other moments when he gives him great advice about what to do, and David listens to it. And then there's moments when David doesn't listen. And this this is one of those moments where David doesn't listen to uh, the voice of reason, even if it comes from Joab. And here's the thing to keep in mind, is that the voice of wisdom can come from anywhere. Do you know that? It can come from anywhere. We need to be listening for wisdom. And we don't just listen to somebody because we like the person. Okay? And we shouldn't ignore people just because we don't like the person. We need to question, is this wise or is it not? I think that's really important to, uh, to work through is that we have to take it case by case. Um, and there's a good story about an old prophet and a young prophet that relates to that as well. Was it God or the devil in this? Here's a passage that uh, critics of the Bible like to bring up as evidence that the Bible contradicts itself. So I'm going to skip past our timeline here if we can. And, well, maybe not. All right, well, why don't we hold our place here, and we'll just do it manually. If you have your Bible, 
or your phone. Let's go to First Chronicles 21. And hold your place because we're going to come back and compare these two. First and Second Samuel, then First and Second Kings. Go through all that and come to First Chronicles twenty-one. And verse one. So everybody there that wants to be there. First Chronicles twenty-one, verse one. Okay, I'd like you to listen to this, and then we'll look back at Second uh, Samuel twenty-four, verse one. Okay, notice what it says in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Do you see a problem between those two? Let's go back to 2 Samuel 24. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them. So the question then becomes, who's doing the inciting? Is it David? Or excuse me, is it God or is it Satan? That's kind of tricky, isn't it? When you come to things like that, it takes a, a moment to stop and reflect upon it and think, what's being said here? There we go. Okay, so I want to talk about this for just a moment. And I think my hope in this uh, tonight is to to look at every moment as... Um, that it could be either testing or temptation. It may be simultaneously uh, the same thing. So here's some options. We'll come back to that thought in just a moment. Uh, one option in trying to reconcile these two ideas, because I think if your conviction is like mine, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Okay, Are you with me on that? That it's not contradictory. We believe that it's written by uh, many different human authors, but one divine author, and he sees to it that all of this somehow has cohesion because our God is not a God of absurdity. He's a God of reason and clarity and chronology, and he, he knows how to communicate uh, better than we do. And I know you know that, and it sounds um, less glamorous than what it really is, but, but he knows all of that. And one um, possibility here is uh, that a chain of events led to the numbering of Israel's troops. So uh, the, the key to understanding this is that you understand in First Chronicles 21, when it says Satan there, anybody know what Satan means, what the literal word means? Adversary, okay, adversary. And so sometimes we have, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but we don't really know the devil's name, that Satan is not a name, it's a title, okay? So when we hear accuser, that's not like the name that God, I think God created Satan as a good angel, Lucifer, I don't know if I want to get into that tonight because that's a, a difficult one we have to untangle. We have to go through the Vulgate to do it, and um, I think that would take a little time. So Lucifer means light bearer. We can, we can leave that. We don't, we don't think that that's his name. That's actually a name that was applied to a translation, and Jerome did that. That's the short version. Jerome gave that name. We don't know his actual name, and... Uh, there is a sermon that I preached, I can't remember when it was, that we talked about that a little bit more. So we can come back to that another time. But the whole reason, I don't want to get off track, the whole reason I'm bringing that up is because here, one solution to this problem is that adversary could just mean some kind of human adversary raised up against Israel. And that incited David to go and count. And it means an adversary in general, 
rather than Satan, the Satan we all know. And that this adversary, because an adversary rose up of some kind, David feels that he needs to go um, to battle against that. So he needs to know his fighting men. I think that interpretation undermines the whole story. So the census um, would show that David's confidence is in his army more than in confidence in God. And the problem is, traditionally, this has been understood to mean Satan and in an almost, it's that way in almost every Bible translation, okay? Another more thorough understanding um, could be credited to, to God as the agent of the unexplained. And I, I don't know if you've read Exodus chapter 4 where God's credited with causing people to be born blind and deaf and all of that. I have a little trouble with that theologically, but the Bible states that in Exodus chapter 4. So how are we going to understand that? And one way that Bible scholars have worked around that is that they believe that revelation is progressive. In other words, that we come to know more and more about God as time goes on. Okay, And so in the early days, there wasn't a huge understanding of who Satan was. And so a lot of the unexplained was credited to God. And so even sometimes uh, illnesses like that, which there's another, another topic for another time. But uh, one of the ways to explain that is to say, well, anything supernatural, we're just going to throw it in the category of what God has done, and then it will unpack later. I don't really like that. It's a little sloppy theologically. But one way to work through this is to see that when uh, the Bible says that God uh, sent plagues upon Egypt or he destroyed Egypt, he uses in the um, Passover, he uses an instrument to do that. What is that? Remember? The, de- the angel of death. It's as if, in my understanding, it's as if God releases him. You know how they say, sled dogs, that they are just chomping at the bit to run. And all they have to do is hear the word. And they go for it. And they do what they're created to do, okay, which is run through snow. And that all God has to do is release. And that angel of death will go and do what it intends to do. And so this is not him enjoying. This is not him, if, if this is a theological problem, actively participating in it. All he's doing is withholding protection. And then he goes and does that. That's one way of looking at this is to see that in the early days they didn't know how to differentiate between that. And so as they communicate, even perhaps under the inspiration of God, they're telling what they're telling us is the total of the story. Now, I'm not buying into this. I'm just telling you one approach to dealing with this. And so when it says that God does this, um, it's that God is doing this, but perhaps he's allowing the agency of Satan to work as we find out later on. I don't know if that's bothersome, but if it is, I have another, I have another approach. Okay. This is the one I believe, all right? So if those other two trouble you, uh, don't despair. Your pastor's not a heretic as far as I know. And so um, looking on to this one is that when we look at the complete picture, that both God and Satan can be working independently in the same event towards different purposes. Are you with me? That what God, and, and we have examples of this, but... Um, Okay, that God and Satan are working in the same event independently with different purposes. Okay, so the same event is that God's angry with Israel, and he's perhaps challenging David in some way, and then we have Satan on the other side is also working in this moment 
for a different purpose. Okay, So I want to unpack that a little bit because I think it has some uh, powerful implications for how we live the Christian life. So um, that might, it may be that we look at a problem in life as if it's either from God or Satan. And I think this is how a lot of times we look at it. We oversimplify things and we go, well, this is God, this is Satan. There are some things that we know for sure that that's the case. There's something, like every good and perfect gift doesn't come from Satan, right? There are some things that we can differentiate. Salvation doesn't come from there. In fact, uh, uh, St. Augustine would say that evil really doesn't have substance. It's not a thing. It's the absence of good or the twisting of good. Satan's not creative. He can only take what God has made and twist it for misuse, okay? So that's one way of looking at all of this, but... Um, let me find my spot here. We may look at it as if uh, problems in life as either from God or from Satan. And this leads to an, an oversimplistic um, understanding of living for God, which the Bible doesn't show. For example, uh, you'll find this in the Bible, and this is not only in Exodus 4, but later on, that you'll find that some uh, physical maladies in the Bible are satanic attacks. Okay? We know that. And uh, sometimes Jesus will rebuke a particular demon that's causing a physical malady in somebody's life. Okay, We've all seen that, right, in the, in the Gospels. But then you find that there are times when the, there are sicknesses that are a result of fallen consequences. Like we live in a fallen world, and things don't work the way that they should. And it's not necessarily that it's a demonic force that's causing it. It's the fallen state that we live in. Then there are some physical maladies that are caused by God. Like when he strikes Miriam with blind or with leprosy, when he holds back the tongue of Zechariah and says, you'll not speak, there are some times where God causes those things and, and uses those for his purpose. And they're always, we have to understand that they're always for a good purpose, and we tend to see them in a black and white category like this is always bad. But if it leads to something good, is it bad? I mean, if you're a parent, you spanked your children, and for looking at it very simplistically, you probably think, it's evil to hit your kids. But you know, you're not hitting your kids. You're disciplining them and making them wise to life. You're teaching them to associate disobedience with pain and at, a, at the simplest level. Lydia, you're getting ahead of me. No, I'm just kidding, but you are. In a way, I, I, we're coming to that, and you're right on. Because I, I think we need to understand that there are lots of times in the Scripture where these things happen. See, uh, David, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't hope you don't take that as disrespect. That's perfect because that's where we're going. And so, um, you see, God doesn't tempt with evil. The Bible tells us that, right? Like when he, when he incites for something, he's not trying to trip us up and cause us to do evil. Are you with me? Okay. He doesn't tempt with evil, neither can he be tempted with evil in James. But uh, he tests. Does God test? Yeah, he tests. And the difference is in purpose. What's the purpose of temptation? Bring you down, destroy you. What's the purpose of testing? What is it? To strengthen us, right? It's to build us up in some way. And uh, so we have, we have uh, both of those things happening. They could happen in the same 
moment. And so it sounds like a semantic game, but it, it's, even, it's even a little bit more difficult than that because the same word is used for tempting and testing in the New Testament. So the difference is, what's the agency behind it? What agent is working behind it? Is it God or is it the devil? Uh, what's working behind that particular event? And it all has to do with purposes. It seems to me that in the story of David, the Lord applies the test in order to reveal something that he sees in David and the nation, and it's to cause it to be brought to light. And even though the Lord uh, kind of incites him to do this or tests him with this, David still doesn't have to do it because he responds to Joab by ignoring his pleas to stop. Okay, Temptation is not a foregone conclusion that sin has to happen. There's still the possibility of an eruption taking place. And so David didn't have to number the troops. David uh, and uh, his cause could be brought to light, and this could have gone a different direction, but instead he chose to follow that. The other one that's working in this is the enemy, where there's a dual agency where he's tempting David to um, count his fighting men. He's tempting him to pride. And he didn't have to respond that way again. Temptation nor testing requires us to go one way or the other. It's, It's really the proving grounds of what's in our heart. And I think that's probably a good understanding of what uh, is going on, is that when it comes to these things um, of testing or tempting, that it's the vote of faith that we give. You see, anytime there's a temptation or a testing that happens, uh, we either give vote of confidence to God, which is faith, or a vote of confidence in ourselves or something else. And so when we fall, uh, we... We lapse in belief in some way, and God promises us the good life, and so we've got something presented before us. Let's take, for example, um, that you have an, uh, an opportunity to get ahead in life by stealing from your company. Okay. Think of that for a moment. And so you might define the good life as having more money. Okay. And the way to get there is just to bypass whatever convictions you have and whatever God has said that you know is right and to get that. And then what you've believed is the lie that money devoid of character is better than character devoid of money. Okay, What God says is that he will reward those who are faithful to him and do what's right. And so it's kind of a vote that takes place there. There's a dual agency that's working it. That might be a test, that that opportunity is presented before you might be a test that God can use, and it might simultaneously be a temptation the enemy will use. Dual agency. Can you think of any other times where there's dual agency? Lydia mentioned one. In Genesis 50-20, crucifixion, okay? Genesis 50-20, uh, Joseph says to his brothers, uh, what you intended for harm... God meant for good. So there's dual agency. The brothers had evil intentions, and they did what they did. God had a good intention. He allowed that to happen. And in in that same moment, there's dual agency at work. And that's really, really important. Um, The cross is a place we see the Bible credits the death of Jesus with uh, the will of God and the schemes of man. I think we, we find Pilate gets blamed 
the Gentiles get blamed, the Jews get blamed, uh, fallen humanity gets blamed. God says, this I've done and I've um, planned for. And so there's dual agency in the crucifixion of Jesus. Are you, do you understand that? And then think about the Paul when it comes to the thorn in the flesh. Do you remember what it says about that? A thorn in the flesh was given me. The Greek word suggests that it's a gift. The thorn in the flesh is a gift given by God. Isn't that interesting? Then it goes on to say a messenger of Satan. How can it be both? Dual agency. The enemy has a purpose and a plan. He sent some kind of demonic attack to connect with Paul. But at the same time, this is going to serve a good purpose of keeping him humble. See how there could be, what do I mean by dual agency? Two agents, two people, two persons, two wills working at the same time for different purposes in the same moment. That's right. And I think oftentimes where that gets played out in our lives is that anytime something's hard in our life, we go, Satan's attacking me. Yeah, he probably is because that's what he does all the time, 24-7, nonstop. Okay? So it's almost like doesn't even need to be said because that's what he does. But how about also seeing this as a test at the same time? It's a temptation of Satan, but it's also a test from God to see how we will respond. Too often we like to throw it in the enemy's category and then feel sorry for ourselves that we're getting such so beat up. I'm not talking to anybody here. This is people in the lower 48 that have problems with this. We all know this, right? <laughs> we're connected to this idea that there's dual agency in this. And I'm laboring this point because I think it's really important. And so the point of exploring this is to understand the way God works and that we need to understand in every temptation there's also a test by which our faith can grow. A temptation really is a test of faith, and you have opportunity to get ahead of, you know, as we said, by doing something wrong, or we can do things the right way and trust God in that same moment and prove our faith. The question David should have asked when he was presented with this opportunity is, what makes a king and a kingdom great? So I don't, as he's incited, I don't know exactly what went through his mind. We're not told. But he's made up his mind. He's going he's gonna to count the fighting men. And the question he probably should have asked is, what makes us great? Is it the number of our fighting men? Or is it the greatness of our God? He should have asked that. And he didn't, he didn't seem to ask that. He seemed bent on doing this. Why, why was it wrong? Um, we're not trying to determine whether this was wrong or not. It seems a little extreme, but if we know a little bit of the context of Scripture and David's life... It starts to make sense. Uh, we're not trying to determine whether it's wrong. The Bible makes that clear that it, it was wrong what he did. And it's clear to the narrator that he was wrong. It's clear to Joab. And eventually David's own conscience catches him on this, that he was wrong. In verse 10, his conscience strikes him. And so we're asking not uh, whether it was wrong, but why it was wrong. And so we can find out what lessons in it for us. You see, in other places in the Old Testament, God told his uh, leaders to count the fighting men. Not interesting. Like this is not. It's not that counting the fighting men is a universal wrong. It's not a universal. 
There's something else that's happening here that the Bible is kind of teasing out for us to understand. We have a lot of places where this happens. Censuses are common enough. We have Moses taking a census in Numbers chapter 1, chapter 26. Uh, They're common through all the period of the monarchy. In addition to David's, there was Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 17. He was a godly man. Amaziah, 2 Chronicles 25. Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26. And uh, those uh, of the monarchy all have to do with military matters. But this, what's interesting is this is a time of peace. David's not at war. He's not getting ready to start any military campaigns. Okay. Um, nothing, nothing like that's happening. He's not, he's not under particular uh, military attack. We call it a spiritual attack. Um, it suggests something other than military strategy. It suggests, uh, uh, well, what do you think it suggests? Pride. Look at what we made of ourselves as a nation. It suggests pride on the part of David or a shift away from trusting God to the glory of the might of men. In Psalm 20, which we've mentioned, uh, he, uh, he shows that he's at one time trusted in the name of the Lord. And maybe this is a lapse in confidence, not the kind that, that happens when we fear, but the kind that happens when um, our confidence is higher than it should be. The things are going well, and we feel that we brought, the, we brought ourselves to this point. Psalm 20, verse 6 through 9. Now, this I know. The Lord, listen, the, this is David writing this psalm. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He, the Lord, answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are uh, brought to their knees and they fall, but we will rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. That sounds a lot different, doesn't it? Like he said, some trust in horses and chariots. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, go count the fighting troops. That's a little contradictory. All right, what's, what's, what's the problem here? Gleason Archer in his um, commentary on this said, his motive was more likely to have been self-congratulatory pride in his achievements as a military genius. And in the prosperity that the entire kingdom had attained under his leadership. So David, at the beginning of his life, fully trusting the Lord. He's a nobody. He says that several times. He says it um, early on. He says it when um, he's anointed. He says it when he's king. You, you just get this sense that David doesn't think he's anybody. And then at the end of his life, look what we've built. Look what we've done. When it should have been, look at what God has done. And it seems to me this might have been a source of national pride, too. To me, this best explains the great cost that came to all of Israel as a result of what would have otherwise been one man's sin. And you could take it that way as, man, God really punished Israel for David's fallop. But do you remember it says in verse 1, again, the Lord was angry with Israel. So he's already angry with them for something, and I think it has to do with the heart of self-congratulations that we've done this. Um, if not, the, <laughs> this, uh, this other um, judgment would be really hard to explain. I'd like you to notice in verses 10 through 25, we're just going to have to touch on this because we're about out of time here, but 
I'd like you to notice that David is repenting, but there are still consequences. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that repentance and God's forgiveness does not mean lack of consequence. The consequences are temporal, right? Most of the consequences are temporal. You could probably argue for some that are lasting if somebody chooses not to follow the Lord because of our bad example. But um, many of the consequences are temporal in that they're given to us in this life to perfect us or to be a warning to others or whatever it may be. But he does allow consequences with forgiveness. And so in verse 10, I'd like you to notice there that David was conscience-stricken. We're back in 2 Samuel 24, if you're wondering. Verse 10 says, David, I'm sorry? Yes. Yeah, Second Samuel 24, verse 10. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. And that example has already been set, but I, I think it, it, uh, the consequences that come, it takes a little more than that to understand that. And I really think it comes down to the national character that they've all bought into this same concept of our own greatness. Okay, so Gad the seer, notice it's not Nathan here. Nathan's not gone. He's not dead because he reemerges when um, Solomon is to be anointed king. Uh, but for whatever reason, Gad's the new seer. Maybe, maybe David's still a little bit afraid of Nathan. I don't know uh, what may be the case here. But uh, Gad's the the seer, the the uh, royal seer, and so he's the and a seer is just another name for a prophet. And so he uh, is sent by God early in the next morning. I think in verse eleven, before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord came to Gad the prophet. David's seer, go and tell David. This is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. And I'd like you to notice what the three options are. Number one is three years of famine. That's not good. Number two is three months of defeat by the enemies. In other words, um, some kind of foreign oppression coming in to fight against you. And option three, three days of plague. Notice, by the angel of the Lord. And David's response to that. David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. If that doesn't tell you something about the character of God, David says, I, I'm going to fall into the hands of a merciful God. doesn't mean there's no consequences. What it means is I want his mercy, because who knows what, what others may try to do. David wisely chooses to fall into the hands of the Lord. In a period of time, that period of time, that three days, 70,000 people die in a plague. This is why I think, okay, this this has got to be bigger than David. It seems, I mean, you may not think this, but it seems to me unjust that somebody somewhere should have to suffer in that way for David's sin alone. And if... uh, we're having a hard time connecting that. Put one of your relatives, somebody you love, in the place of the people who died. How would you feel about that? And it doesn't matter because if God said it and did it, then we have to adjust ourselves to it. But as I said, the Lord was already angry with Israel. And so as this whole thing begins to unfold, he's judging them and dealing with them as a people. In Second Samuel twenty four seventeen, 
As uh, he's, David sees the angel that has been uh, bringing death upon the nation. And it says that um, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, verse 17, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I'm the shepherd who have done wrong. These are but sheep. Okay? And you might think, well, that absolves everybody of their guilt. I don't think it does. I think David is trying to take the major responsibility for this. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. I get to notice a twinge of prophetic in that, don't you think? Who's David's family going to be? Who's the son of David? It's Christ, right? Like this isn't just David's sin, but the sins of the whole world will fall upon Christ, the son of David. It's a sacrifice as he he goes to uh, repent of his sin and offer an, an offering. Um, he's told by Gad the prophet in verse 18 through 25 uh, to go up to build an altar of the Lord on the threshing floor of Aranah, the Jebusite. And so David went up, as the Lord had told him. And just going to paraphrase a little bit of this. Aranah sees David coming, recognizes the king and his entourage, and he says, what have you come for? And he said, the Lord told me to build an altar here and sacrifice to the Lord. And, and Arnaud's like, I'm just going to give all this land to you. Do you remember what David said? What's that? I will not offer a sacrifice that costs me nothing. I mean, he buys the land. I mean, I was thinking here, we'd probably be grateful if somebody paid our tithes for us. David's saying, I will not offer something that doesn't cost me. He understood sacrifice. He wants to give to the Lord. And so he buys the land and he builds an altar and he sacrifices there. And he called upon the Lord and the Lord heard him and relieved Israel from their plague. God is gracious. And if we've messed up, if we've fouled up, if we've gotten the wrong kind of perspective, and it seems like with those who are nearest to God and have the greatest uh, understanding of who he is and what it means to follow him, the judgments, the disciplines are greater because this there's severity to all of this. David purchases the land. Do you know what that land became? It became the Temple Mount. It was on the threshing floor of Arnaud. We hear it in First Chronicles 22, verse 1. That's the very next chapter, right, of of this story, from this story in the Chronicle version. Then David said, the house of the Lord God is to be here, and also the altar of burnt offering for Israel. That's the threshing floor of Arnah. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, after David has died, then Solomon built the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Arnah, the Jebusite, the place that was provided by David. So God met them there, and it became the place of perpetual remembrance that God is a forgiver of sins and that he will atone for our sins. And um, I, as I think about this, what is this, what does this mean for us? What, is, uh, what does counting the fighting men mean for you and me? Well, I think Jesus told a parable that kind of relates to this in Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide my inheritance with me. You remember this? Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? 
And then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life is not consistent of the abundance of our possessions. And he said this to them in a parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, "Uh, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I will store my surplus grain and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This man looked at his life in pride and said, I've done pretty well for myself. And God judged him for that because we don't make our lives ourselves. We're participants. It's God who makes life good for us. So the question then is, who gets the glory in our lives? When we look at the, the good in our lives, does something inside of us say, look at what I've done? Or do we turn and give glory to God? You see, I think the principles are that we should always rely upon Him as of greater value than all the resources in the world. That's what, if you have God and nothing else, you're as rich as the person who seems to have everything and God. Because He has it all and we're inheritors with Him. And then I would suggest another principle is never fail to give God credit for all the good that has come. See, we're very strange in how we think. When things go well, uh, we think it's because of us. And then when things go badly, we want to blame other people or blame God. And the reality is, it's not what the Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, there are times when we're unaware of what forces are at work, but oftentimes we're the ones who should be taking the blame when things don't go well. And we should always give glory to God when things do. Okay? And so let's not be like David as we progress in our faith and we see God do greater and greater things. It's not us. We had a teacher in Bible college that used to tell us, if you ever see a turtle on a fence post, it didn't get there by itself. Amen. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for listening. Father, thank you, Lord, for this word of reminder that it all comes from you, every breath the sun that shines upon us and allows life to be lived, the air that we breathe, the goodness that you've shown to our lives, the placement of our lives into this particular setting. You call us and you bless us again and again, and we often, we many times don't deserve the good that you've done for us, and we certainly don't deserve the salvation you've given us. And we love how you cause the rain, which is good, to fall on the just and the unjust, and you cause the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, and you're just good in all that you do. We look to you and we love you. Help us to recognize that whenever a temptation comes, it's also a test. And to make our vote in favor of the kingdom of God and for you, trusting your word and your wisdom, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.